things in life for free But you can give them to the birds and bees I want money searching iTunes and Spotify later today for that song. The title is Money, I Want Money by the Flying Lizards. I have no idea who the Flying Lizards are, but I love this song. I'm going to finish the song for you. I'm going to give to you the third and fourth verses. The first two verses are so painfully accurate that I can't deny you verses three and four. And as you heard, verses are very short. Verse three, money doesn't get everything, it's true, but what it doesn't get, I can't use. I want money, that's what I want. Verse four really just boils it down. I want money, I want lots of money. In fact, I want so much money, give me your money, just give me money. And that's how the song culminates with a lot of that I don't know, washtub banging maybe? That was a thing then? This song has been recorded by more artists than you can imagine, from the early days of R&B and soul singers to the kind of, like this isn't punk rock, it's alternative. I don't know what actually genre of music the Flying Lizards would be, but you can find it in the blues singers, you can find it in the barroom singers. I mean, the the, um, like... um, in sync or somebody like that has recorded this song. I mean, it's crazy. And the reason why? It's because it's just so true. It's just so true, so accurate. Well, I'm not going to to hold any punches today. I want to just come right out and tell you that today I'm going to begin a short series on the treasure of life entitled Making Bank making bank. And here's the essence of the series in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. I know, I know. I owe you an apology. Pastor, you should have told us you were going to preach on this before we came so we could choose whether we wanted to come or not. Are you kidding me? No way. I'm going to set myself up for that. I'm going to surprise you every time. Oh my goodness. Come on, y'all gonna have to lighten up. I know, are you, you're doing this right here and you're all tense and you're like, get ready to run for the door. You go first like you have to go to the bathroom and then I'll come after you in a few minutes. Already making your escape plan. No man can serve two masters, Jesus tells us. You know, it's interesting. A master doesn't have to be a person. A master is anything that controls or holds influence over you to think or to act in a way that serves the purpose, intent, or glory of that thing which it serves. And here's what money does. It makes you think that it can make you happy. It makes you think that it can make you happy. But money will never never satisfy you. Why? Because it cannot satisfy you. 
It's not possible. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, the wisdom literature tells us this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Now, friends, that is penned from the man who was the wealthiest person in the history of humanity, King Solomon. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Jesus warns us in the New Testament, you cannot serve God and money. That word for serve, just as a kind of a hermeneutical principle, a way of understanding the Bible when you're reading it, anytime you see the word serve with about 95% accuracy, you can substitute the word love for it and it will mean the same exact thing because the word serve is just a practical expression of the word love and its meaning. So when Jesus says you cannot serve God and money, it says this, you cannot love them both. You will always love one more than the other. And the one that's loved less will always be used to serve the one that's loved more. When Jesus teaches about money, which is about 40% of all of his teachings in the New Testament. So I'm guessing like if we want to be biblical, we should teach on money as much as Jesus does. That's about 20 Sundays a year. I don't know anybody that does that. Uh, but here's the trajectory of Jesus' teachings regarding money. It's never a matter of if we allow money to master us. It's always a matter of when and how that he warns us to not allow money to master us. Friends, any measure or extent to which money masters you excludes Jesus's lordship over you in that area or in that way of your life. And so my aim for this series, it's a three-week series today and two more weeks. My aim in these three weeks is to help us see that Christians live to glorify God and to serve King Jesus with all of life's treasures. That the point of our life and all that we have in this world for now because we know that there's never been a funeral hearse with a U-Haul attached to the back, right? You don't take it with you. You don't take it with you. That all of this life is to live, to glorify God and to serve King Jesus. The Making Bank series will cover three relationships with money. Today, we're gonna talk about money and identity. How it is that we're to understand life's treasure to build our lives in God's kingdom and not to wrongly place our identity in that money or that treasure. I say treasure because of this. It's not just about the bills in your wallet. It's not just about the dollars in your bank account. It's about all that we, shall we say, own or that we have in this life, okay? That's why I use the word treasure. The second week, I'm gonna talk about money and giving. How it is that the Bible instructs us to steward money in order to honor God. And that's actually going to address an issue that I raised today in this sermon. The third week, I'm going to talk about money and mission. And how it is that God uses Christians to resource his mission in the world. And so today we're going to begin with money and identity. You see, a confused understanding of our Christian identity in Christ always creates a dreaded obligation towards giving. Oh man, 
I mean, I've had people say this to me. Don't you know we don't want to hear what you have to say about money? I've actually had people tell me that. Good. That's why I'm not talking about money. I'm telling you what God has said about money. And if you don't want to hear what he has to say about it, take it up with him. Because that conflicts with the calling that he's given to me to teach and to preach his word. Friends, if that's you today, I get it. Because I'm not dismissed from the same tensions in my own heart and life and the temptations to believe what I'm talking about today than any of us. That's the point. It's not if money masters us, but it's when it masters us and how it masters us. And that's why Jesus talks so much about it. And the gospel is not insufficient to encourage us and to rejoice within us in terms of our money. We must beware the temptation to substitute any obligation to give for a biblical understanding of stewardship that flows from our identity in Christ. You see, Christians never settle for obligation as a motivation for giving. Well, we got to do this. Let's grind it out and see. That, that, that's not how Christians give because of what we believe about our lives. And that's what I want to talk about today. That there is no offering at the end of the service today, okay? I'm going to set you free from that right now. Rather, as Christians, we draw from the depths of God's grace to understand our life and our new identity in Christ. And from that identity, it motivates from the heart how we live in obedience as stewards to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk for a few minutes about how it is that we get owned by our money so that we, by the conviction of the Spirit, can repent, find God's grace, and serve King Jesus. Today I want us to talk about making bank money and identity from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to turn there. It's going to be a minute before I get there. But I want you to just hold your place at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The big idea that I want you to walk away with today is this. Christians steward life's treasure by grace to demonstrate the supreme glory of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. We hold a strong desire for money because we believe that it can do things that only God can do. You see, money's only temporal. It cannot sustain our needs but God's wisdom warns us in Proverbs eleven four: wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. You know what the day of wrath is in scripture? It's the day when God cuts through all the clutter that the world's created and brings into precise clarity what it is that his will is for us. When he cuts away all unrighteousness and wickedness and all sin and brings righteousness to bear as the standard by which he measures every person and by which we'll be judged when we stand before him. And those who measure up in themselves will be accepted by God. Intentional pause. You should be going, now, wait a minute. I don't think that's what the Bible says. Actually, the Bible says, yes, if you do, you will, but you won't, so don't try it. Because we won't satisfy. And we know that in our own conscience, in our own heart, we know that we will not measure up to God's standard. 
we need a savior. We don't need a helper. You know, we, we don't need just somebody to encourage us, though we are encouraged in the gospel. We need a savior, somebody to come and take our place. And that's what Christ has done. And that matters for all of life. Nevertheless, he says, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. God will not be paid off by anyone, neither in deeds nor by debts. But he says this righteousness delivers from death. You see, what I'm laboring for in this short series is for each of us to come to the place where we understand where death is remaining in us because there's a lack of faith in Christ. And for us to root out the death, the sin in us so that we can follow him by faith in every way and receive the life that he has for us. But nevertheless, even though we know money can't do all that it promises, we continue to put our hope in it, believing that it will make us happy, that it will somehow make us content, that it will uh, make us appreciated or make us more secure or satisfied with ourselves, or even accepted by others. You know what? Money will make you accepted by other people as long as you have it. But ask the prodigal son how it works out when you run out of it. Because everyone that accepted you will immediately reject you because of money. You see, that little voice that money whispers in our ear tempts us when it whispers that we could do it right better than the prodigal son actually did it and not meet the same demise. All the while knowing that that's not true. Let me, let me give to us five common ways that we establish our identity by money. And I want us to be radically practical with you here, okay? These are small practices, and, and some of them don't mean that we lose our life in it, but some of them means that we're subtly following one step at a time, pursuing a path that will not lead us to where we want to go in following Jesus and that's really what our identity is all about. The first way that we establish our identity with money is when we esteem money as providing for life what only God can provide. Ultimate provision, security and safety. And, and we seek something from it that it cannot give us. In other words, I'm not just talking about the faithful use of money where we're able to take what we've earned and apply it to purchase what we need and, and the transaction of economy. I, I'm not talking about this. Listen, the last thing I'm going to tell you is that all money is bad. If all money were bad, God would have told us to rid our lives of all of it and then to live without any of any good that it could provide. But that's not what he tells us. He just simply warns us not to let it master you and not to let the love of it overtake you. And he leaves us with it. As a matter of fact, I only know of one situation where God told a person to get rid of all of your money in order to follow him, and that's the rich young ruler. Why? Because it was money that was ruling his heart, and without doing what the Lord had said, he could not understand the lordship of Christ. And so he told the rich young ruler, go sell all that you have and give the money to the poor and come follow me. You see, the point wasn't about never having money or the things it can provide. The point was don't let them rule you. Don't be owned by it. That's what Jesus teaches. And when we esteem money as providing for life what only God can provide, we're establishing our identity 
in it. Proverbs 18.11 warns with this principle, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. Wow. What could ever happen to this? What could ever happen to this? We'll come back to that in a moment with an illustration. The second way that we establish our identity by money is when we esteem more highly those with money. In other words, we grant more favor, more, uh, more trust. We, we grant to them uh, things that we would not grant to them if they did not have that money. James warns us about giving honor and favor to those with money uh, just because they have money to the neglect of those that don't have money. The principal manifestation in life, the way that we see this, here it is. And, and listen, I, I'm going to talk to you not just about the outward, but I want to talk to you about the attitudes of the heart too. The principal manifestation is this, is when we covet other people's things and we want the life that we think they have. Why am I telling you that? Why, why, am, I, uh, why am I not just saying, well, you're trying to keep up with the Jones or whatever you know, the, the common cliche is? Because sometimes we see that and sometimes we don't and sometimes we can measure that. But listen, we don't want to wait till we get to that point till we begin to fight the rule of money because money rules us long before the outward expression of it. When the attitude of our heart and the inclination of our mind is to look at other people and to conceive what we think they have, and to want it we know that money's already ruling us long before we pursue it you see the gospel fights our wars for glory and for goodness within us much deeper than we want to grant them access and and what the gospel says is that we have to fight for joy at the inner recesses at the deepest parts of our being and we, when we even esteem other people more highly because of what we perceive in them, we're already being ruled and owned by money and things. That's what the gospel is telling us. Fight it in your heart and you won't have to worry about it in your, act, in your uh, actions of life. You see, the real deception is this, that today, so many that seem to have money, in fact, do not. They're just willing to carry more debt for stuff. Bernie Madoff is a name that became famous just a few years ago, but for all the wrong reasons. I recently watched a, a show, a, a two-part series. It wasn't a documentary, so I can't take everything they said as fact. I'm sure there was some producer creative freedom and license as they typically have on those shows but Bernie Madoff became the biggest thief in history. He stole over 50, count it, capital B, italics, bold, billion dollars. $50 billion such that when he walked into the jail to begin to serve his 150 year sentence, he was actually applauded by the inmates and heralded and exalted in prison because he had done more than anybody else had ever done. How sadistic is that? But let me talk to you a little bit about what I learned about Bernie. As he stole $50 billion, I, don't, I can't even comprehend that, in a Ponzi scheme. For those of you who are, you know something about finances, you can tell us what Ponzi means later. All I know is it was a bad thing. 
So if someone says, I have a Ponzi scheme for you, stay away from it, okay? It's not Fonzie, it's not cool. For everyone over 45, you understood that? (laughs) Otherwise, you have to watch Cozy TV to understand that. His strategy was simple. Use people's greed and pride against them. And here was his argument the entire time that he was in the courts. Here was his argument. Uh, Of course, there was really no arguing about him being innocent for he actually admitted what he had done when he was caught, finally. But his argument was this. You don't really want to know what I've done. You don't want what I have done to be true. You want what I told you to be true. And he used people's greed and pride against them. He said this, the government didn't want it to be true because it would reveal a fallacy about the whole economic process that they just didn't want to deal with. And in fact, the SEC investigated him but turned their eye to him initially. That's what the the documentary or or rather the, the series tells us. And he said this when before the judge, the government didn't want what I did to be true. They didn't want to acknowledge it because they wanted to believe what I had actually falsely put on paper. He said, not only that, but the banking industry did not want to believe. He said, who puts, at one time he had over $36 billion in one bank account. And not one eyebrow was raised for investigation. Not one. Not once did the bank say, hey, hmm, the markets don't seem to be moving as quickly as his bank account is. Maybe we ought to look into this. He said, you know why they didn't? Because they wanted it to be true. They liked the interest off of 36 capital B billion dollars in their bank. They wanted what they were getting. That's why they turned a blind eye to it. And he said, but lest you think it's the government or the industry's fault, every person that invested into my account wanted what I told them. You see, a Ponzi scheme basically does this. He took your money and he put it in his account and then he gave you a sheet of paper that made you think you were making a whole lot more money than you were ever really making. The problem is it got so big and so ludicrous that people began to be ashamed or embarrassed if they participated in it, those who would know anything about it. And so they didn't dare ask. And when the markets in that season began to go down, but their profits continued to rise, nevertheless, nevertheless, if economically everything had stayed the same and the economy had not tanked, the actions of Bernie Madoff's account And the transactions that he claimed to make on a daily basis, they say, would not only have affected the American markets, but would have affected the global markets so that people could see his movement of money. And do you know what was not happening? The movement of Bernie's money. And you know what Bernie said with the smirk on his face? You know why you didn't ask questions? Because you didn't want to know the truth. What you wanted to know what was on paper. You were greedy and you were prideful and you had your hope in my money. That's what he said. 
Watch the series for yourself. I was sitting there going, oh, my goodness, I'm about to preach on money. I have my grand illustration. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. He was right. He was right. We establish our identity by money when we esteem those without money as less. Be careful what your heart says to you, friends. When you look at those who have little or no money and in any inkling of of thought that crosses your mind, you think, wow, if only they could do like I've done. What stupid decision did they make to get there? And friends, right there, you need to understand that Your heart is being owned. You're being robbed. And you don't even know it. Proverbs 14.20 states this principle simply. The poor are shunned even by their neighbors. But the rich have many friends. That aren't really friends. The fourth way that we establish our identity by money is when we try to get everything that money can provide for us more than pursuing what God wants for us and gives to us. Paul says that he learned contentment both in riches and in poverty. Philippians chapter 4 verses 11, 12, and 13, he says this, I have learned the value of living with contentment. When I have had much, I have had to learn it wasn't the much that made me valuable. It wasn't the much that made God love me. It wasn't the much that caused people to like me. I've learned to be content and to have it, but not let it to have me. And then he says, but I've also learned contentment when I had nothing. When the only thing I could say I had was great need. I need this and the only thing I can, that's got my own signature at the bottom of it that I own is I need a lot. I'm hungry, I need clothes, I need need to get out of prison, I need to get away from these kinds of people who are trying to kill me. I mean, the list is endless with Paul, right? But he says this, those things didn't own me either. I didn't live in a pity party, why? Because I had learned the value of being content, whatever my circumstances. And you know, it's interesting. One of the most ill-quoted verses of Scripture summarizes what Paul says there. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, that verse isn't just about conquering mountains. It's about learning that Jesus is better regardless of where you are and what you have in this life. And it's about learning to genuinely live out of that conviction in your life. Now this last one's going to sting a little bit. I'll warn you before I put it there. We establish our identity by money when we try to give our kids everything in this world that money can provide. And what we actually end up doing is training our kids to live under money's condemnation. 
It's okay, kids. It's weighty, but you can manage it, right? And the reason we do it is because our identity is determined by it. And we believe it's best for them to train themselves to learn to identify themselves in the same thing. Some of you have heard this story before, and I'm going to ask you to indulge me. But I want to tell the rest of you about the unforgettable experience of the first time my dad took me to Disney World. I mean, it was unforgettable, friends. And you're about to know why I say it's unforgettable. You see, after a week of vacation on the beach, within less than an hour from Disney World, all three kids, I was maybe four, five, six at this, at this age. I was young. After a week of vacation and preparing to head home, we were beckoning upon dad. Dad, you got to take us to Disney World. We're within an hour. What kind of father would you be if you didn't take us to Disney World? And he said, kids, you're right. You're right. So he loaded us into that 40-foot Grand Torino station wagon. Wood grains down the side. King mattress in the back so all the kids could sleep while we traveled. You know what I mean? It was massive. Massive. That was the most embarrassing part that I'm still a little bitter about my parents making me ride in that thing. But it was the 70s, baby. We were owning it. My dad drove into the entrance of Disney World and he said, Look, kids, there's Disney World. And we looked and the glory of Disney World beheld before us. And then he flipped the left blinker on, he took the next crossover, and we began the 18-hour drive home. And I'm not preacherizing that story right there. That's legitimate. That's legitimate. Let me tell you something. Here's the reason I tell you that story. Because by God's grace... I was raised by parents who didn't let money own them and who didn't let me believe that money would ever provide more or better than God could. Now, dads, I don't recommend you try that. I'm not man enough to have done that myself. And my dad didn't do that to be bitter at us or mad at us. It's just a great story. Conveniently, he says he never did it. Whatever. Listen to this. I'm laboring for you to believe this. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Those aren't my words. Those are the Lord Jesus' words. Luke 12, verse 15. We know this. Because we know how much money has failed us at times. But we don't want to believe it and we sure don't want to live by it. Listen, money never adds value to life by gaining it. And it never strips dignity from personhood by losing it. Money never adds value to life by gaining it. And it never strips dignity from personhood by losing it. And I'm going to tell you, there's countless people in our world who need to hear this because if you remember October of 2008, you'll remember this. Multitudes of people were taking their own life simply because on a piece of paper, the amount of money that they lost was inconsolable. So don't think that it's not possible for people to believe this. And please never be duped to believe that you and I are in some way 
not able to believe that and to fall prey to it either. When money identifies us, it obligates us. Listen to this story about Joshua Terrell in Sacramento, California. It's an article called The Debt Stress Connection. He described himself as an easygoing person, lived in Sacramento. He was a graphic designer. And then the economy tanked, and he and his family started struggling financially. He said, I've never let stress run my life before, but ever since money got tight, I found that I'm a prisoner to it. Those are his own words. He worries that if he fills up the gas tank, he won't be able to afford the movies on the weekend. Or if he keeps paying for health insurance, he won't be able to get his wife the birthday present that she wanted. But then, a few months later, the 37-year-old suffered a massive heart attack, even though he had no warning signs and no immediate genetic risk factors. And the doctor simply pointed to stress as a major contributing factor. Terrell said this, I feel like I'm completely a different person than I was. I would attribute more than 90% of it to worry about my finances. Friends, when we build our lives on and fill our lives with all the things that money can buy and we support and sustain our happiness and our relationships with them, we are defining our life by it. So how is it then that we move from obligation that it puts on us to living by grace as the Bible teaches us. That's the gist of today's message. Christians must know and we must live out of our true identity as followers of Jesus Christ to bring glory to God and to honor Jesus as King. Let me just give you a couple of verses really quick and then I'm going to talk to you about five guards here. And this will all move very quickly, I promise. All that we have and all that we are is from God. Acts 17, 28 tells us that in him, talking about Christ Jesus, we live, we move, we have our being. In all, we belong to the Lord. Romans 14, verses 17 and 8 says this, whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. In all we do, we do everything for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 tells us, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then Matthew 6, 33, Jesus tells us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. All what things? All of your needs, all of your provisions, all of life's demands. You see, the key to the relationship between money and identity is simply this. Do you live as sovereign or do you live as a steward? It boils down to this. Not giving our money is really not about how much it's worth, but it's about how much we try to maintain control so we don't have to trust God with our life. You see, faithful stewardship is not just about giving a percentage to God, but it's how we spend every dollar that we have. Why? Because every dollar is one that God has given to us. That's what it's all about. Every dollar that we're entrusted with is either used as an act of worship unto God or as an act of idolatry. Faithful stewardship is determined by how we manage every dollar. And with the spending of every dollar, we say one of two things, this is from God or this is mine. 
Every dollar says that. And so moving from obligation to grace in giving begins by embracing life as a steward and denying and repenting of trying to live as sovereign. And so when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul grants to us what I'm calling five guards to hold our identity in Christ as we steward all of life's treasures in such a way to demonstrate the supreme glory of God and to honor Jesus as king in our life. Let's go there. Let's read together the first four verses, and I want to work through these very briefly with you. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians 8, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Let's stop there for a moment. Here's the first guard that grace gives to us to guard our heart against being ruled and owned by our money and being faithful stewards. Grace initiates giving. Grace initiates giving. You see, love compels us to give because Christ first loved us and the way he loved us was to give himself for us. Grace empowers us to give because it frees us to give ourselves away as God did for us. Not our circumstances, not our obligations, and not our needs. You see, if you ask someone, what is the recipe? What is the formula that equals a wealth of generosity? Few people would say, well, it starts with a severe test of affliction. And then you need some abject poverty beyond all imagination. And add to that a little bit of joy. And that's how you get a wealth of generosity. But that's what Paul says. Paul says it was a severe test of affliction. I don't like a minor affliction in my life. I mean, I can stub my toe and be down for a month. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't like affliction in my life. But when it becomes severe, like everybody's going to hurt with Lane because that makes Lane feel better, right? I mean, that's just kind of, or maybe that's a man thing. You know, we get a cold and think we're having a baby. <clears throat> But that's what Paul said it began. And then he said this, but he said, but their abundance of joy. You see, there was something in the midst of their circumstances that were greater than their circumstances. There was something taking place that was not defined by everything going on around them, but that was stronger within them. And that was the source of their joy, who was Christ Jesus. And then he said this, but the reality of their circumstance and their need was, was bad. He said this, their extreme poverty. Blathosphere is the Greek word for that extreme poverty there. And it is the proportionate opposite of stratosphere. So when you think of stratosphere, you think of something high, far, greater than could be conceived. And what Paul is saying is deep, low, without end, in the absolute bottom of bottoms that has no end to it. That's where they lived. And they said, whoa, 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 whoa. We want to give. We want to give. And Paul says they didn't just give 
what they were able to give, they gave far beyond what they were able to give. You see, when grace takes hold of your life and you anchor your life in Jesus Christ, grace initiates giving. Why? Because giving is the only right response to love in the way we've been loved in Jesus Christ. And when grace initiates giving, it guards your heart not to be owned in your living by money. The second guard is this. We guard our identity in God's grace when grace empowers sacrificial living. Look at verse 5. He continues, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They weren't trying to impress people by the offering that they could receive. Rather, they had submitted themselves to Jesus Christ and to his lordship. And what they gave was just a natural overflow of what he was doing in their heart and in their life. You see, when a Christ follower gives himself to God, it never just ends there. I mean, there is a grace that empowers a sacrificial living that's really unbelievable to the naked eye. God sends us all, each and every one, to others to act. And, and, and every action, every deed, and every attitude is an overflow of his working power in us. And that's the way God wants to work. When we submit our lives, when we surrender, just like it says in Philippians 2 of the Lord Jesus Christ, he humbled himself and he obeyed, even though he prayed right before his death, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And that is the path that walked him to the cross to give up his life. You see, that is the grace of God that is alive in us in Jesus Christ. And when that grace takes hold of us and we've anchored our very livelihood in it. There is no level of giving that we will not follow the Lord in, even unto the very giving of our lives. Why? Because he is sufficient to take care of us if that's where he leads us. That's how grace works in us. The third guard that he provides for us is in verse six and verse seven. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this, acts, this act of giving. Here's the third guard. Grace excels in action unto completion. God doesn't leave anybody half done. And God doesn't want his people to be half-hearted in the way that they do and live for him. It's not enough to have a great start for God. Grace excels our work all the way through to completion. And is it not true that it's just about midway in when the pain really sets in, you've got to fight through that pain and move on? Yeah. Why? Because when we really begin to give, we begin to see where it is. Not if, but when and how money really has a hold on us. And as we give, it excels us to keep giving because God is doing more than we know in our life. Grace empowers us to excel even in our giving for growth and for maturity. The fourth guard is we guard our identity in God's grace when grace supersedes command. This is where obligation really just dissipates. Verse eight says this, Paul says, I'm not telling you this as a command, but I'm telling you this to the Corinthians about the Macedonians to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. You see, our obligation in the command is not dissolved to obey God's commands, but rather it's superseded. There's a greater glory it's not just that, hey, I did what you asked me to do, but rather I wanted to be in obedience to the Lord. 
And there's a greater joy in that, friends. We're not held to an obligatory set of rules or requirements. We're set free. We're, we're, we're set free by grace to go beyond to prove the measureless extent of God's love. That's why a team competes, to show its ability. But if a team loses, what happens? That team dissolves? No. They come back ready to compete the next week. And that's what Paul's talking about. There is a competition, not with one another, but in ourselves, that says this. We want to do all that we can do, but we want to do all that God wants us to do, because only then will we be trusting in what God wants to do in us. The fifth guard is this. We guard our identity in God's grace. When grace transforms poverty into our riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Rich. Listen, this guard about grace transforming poverty into riches, here's what it does. It denies the fake glory that money creates so that it can achieve the true glory that only grace can bring. And here's the thing about this. That will never happen unless mind, heart, and will are anchored in Jesus to see things not as the world purports them, but as God says about them. Five guards to anchor your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. But I'm going to ask you to listen for just another moment as we prepare to respond to the Lord. These three messages, I believe, are essential for us as a church, but also for every Christian, friends. And I, I preach today's message really to prepare you for the next two weeks, so I hope you will be here because I can tell you what I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna bend your arm or twist it or in any other way try to exert on you a pain just to get something out of you. Listen, what you give is between you and God. My life's not hinging on it, and nobody else's around here is either, okay? But I do want for you the glory of God to be the greatest aim of your life. And so what the Spirit is doing in you right now, I'm going to ask you throughout this week to discern it with three questions. Here's question number one. Do you live as a sovereign like all of this is mine? Or do you live as a steward like all is from God? Are you sovereign? Or are you a steward? There's no in-between. It's very clear. When you go spend a dollar this week, ask yourself this. Am I spending this as sovereign? I'm in control. I can provide what I want and need. Or I'm spending this as a steward. God, I spend this dollar in honor of you, however you spend it. The second question I would have you ask yourself is this. Have you moved beyond obligation to grace in your giving unto the Lord? Do you give to the Lord because you just think that's what you're supposed to do? And well, you know, if I give to God, he'll give a little bit to me and it'll all kind of work out in the end. That's not biblical, friends. Don't give out of obligation, but ask the Lord to teach you to give in response to what he's given and done for you so that it increases joy and doesn't cover it up. The third question you ask yourself is, are you living true to your identity in Christ? Or are you trying to find your value, your worth, your security, your identity in something other than Jesus?